Hello and welcome to this episode of the Interaction Lab podcast brought to you by City Interaction Lab and the Centre for Human-Computer Interaction Design at City University of London. I'm Stuart Scott, Interaction Lab Manager and um, I'm lucky to be speaking today to Adam and Constantine from uxstudy.com. Uh, they've become the go-to guide for usability lab design uh, and they're going to be sharing their insights based on their experience. Hello. Yeah, thanks for joining us guys. Um, yeah, I mean, it, perhaps we can start off with you individually introducing yourselves, a bit about your interests and your background. Yeah, so um, my name's Adam Banks. I actually studied at City. I did the master's course there a few years ago. Um, my very long background is I used to work in theatres when I was very young. Oh, wow. So I had a technical job. I was a lighting designer and theatre designer. Uh, from there, I went into kind of standard audiovisual design. So I used to design meeting rooms and cinemas and theatres. And through that, I drifted into UX because the UX of the AV world is very, very poor. Um, have you ever used a meeting room with a control system that was good, that worked, that you enjoyed? Uh, no. Yeah. No one has because they're all pretty bad. Um, I'm currently on an international standards committee to try and <coughs> introduce user-centered design into the AV world. Okay, that sounds like a, a noble cause to be fighting. <laughs> yeah, it's, the, it, the world it, of industry will like you, love you for that. You know. It's a bit of an uphill task, but we're, we're, we're slowly making inroads. So we should be publishing our standards in the next 12 months, we think. So, <clears throat> um, I spent 10 years working at Google as a user researcher, and also I designed and built all of Google's user research infrastructure while I was there. So I built all of their labs, their design centers, all of the technology and everything that the research team used to do their research. Quite good. So you, you've had a very long, varied career from sort of treading the board, or not treading the boards, <laughs> but designing the boards to designing the boardrooms to designing the labs. Basically, yeah. Uh, including such big hitters as Google. So, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm definitely in the right place to learn about usability labs. Absolutely. Uh, and, and what about Constantine? Do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, in that regard, my career was much more boring. So I've always been a UX researcher and started in probably 1999 okay. uh, in Russia. Uh, I created one of the first research agencies there. Then I left my company to start working for Google about maybe 13 years ago. So then about eight years in Google, then I left Google to start an agency again together with Adam. Oh wow! And I remember when I started in 1999, it was, you need to record uh, a session and you think that okay for this specific session I'll just use the camera on the tripod because there should be equipment somewhere designed specifically for UX labs yeah. but I just don't have time to find it now so 20 years later we decided finally to build that equipment because <laughs> it basically didn't exist so before you, so you've been waiting 20 years for this to happen and it's just not <laughs> happening yeah like especially yeah. Like in companies like Google with unlimited budget unlimited technology and access to all the smartest engineers in the world yeah so Adam built all the labs and that was probably the, the best lab I've ever seen in my life. But still, in terms of uh, how much the company needed to spend to build that, and then they couldn't clone Adam, so it was just <laughs> one person building everything. Oh, so eventually they might. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we signed NDA, so we cannot talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> the sheep project. Yeah, yeah, that's another lab. Um, <laughs> but I mean, the fact that you've been doing UX since 1999, that's kind of like, you know, that's quite... Yeah, I mean, I know UX is, I mean, usability has been long, uh, longer than that, but most of the people doing it now haven't been around for that long. You know, it, that's quite a good pedigree in the industry. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the, the, you know, okay, you've not done the, the kit out as long as Adam, but it's still a broad range of experience. And what, I mean, just out of interest, I didn't realise you'd run an agent, two agencies as well. How was that for, you know, what was that like? In Moscow, um, well, 
location-wise, it was different. Different. So mm -hmm. I really enjoyed being able to to deal with less paperwork and bureaucracy in the UK. Uh, <laughs> on another side, another funny thing was when I just started. When you you talk to your clients saying that you work in, in usability and research, usability and research, yeah, they always say, "What? What's that?" <laughs> <laughs> so kind of, I had experience. Very good experience kind of describing what it is and why you need that and why the problem you're experiencing right now is not necessarily a technological problem. Yeah. It might be an overlap between issues users have on your their side and your technology you build and this is where your user experience is. Yeah. So kind of I had fun with just describing and persuading people that future clients that we actually they actually need to pay attention to something they don't even know that exists. Yeah, it's like we've got this problem, we think it's this. No, actually it's this this overlap of conflicting interests and technology demands and stuff like that. And yeah, that's crazy. I mean, uh, and um, what got you into it? In the, uh, what, I'll, I'll move on in a second. But what, just what got you into it in the first place in in the in the 90s in Russia? Like, was it a, a scene that you saw emerging that you wanted to get in on? Like, did you train in it, or did you train in something else, and that sort of informed your move into UX? Like, how did that happen? I remember we asked that question in Google. There were like hundreds of researchers there, and everybody had their own stories. So yeah. I can share mine, but I don't. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not very typical. <laughs> so for me, my background is computer science, and for me, I really enjoyed that area. But there was something missing. Yeah. Because you know what you are building, you don't know why you are building that. Yeah. And in addition to that, there is a complexity of human relationship and just people that I really missed in their, the computer science area. So I've been thinking about kind of getting the second degree, but then uh, I was lucky uh, to attend lectures by my p future PhD chief, uh, Vladimir Manitov, who was the head of ergonomics and basically everything related to user experience mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. the Soviet Union and back in Russia, after that in Russia for probably like 40 years. Wow. So he was my PhD chief and basically almost everything that I know I learned from him. So it was kind of a combination of luck and dissatisfaction with my first background. <laughs> I didn't even realize that Russia had a usability czar. That's kind of <laughs> quite exciting. Um, so how did you guys meet? Is this, you know, I'm guessing Google played a part in this. Yeah, so we, we met working at Google. Um, Kostya was on the Android team and I was ostensibly on the search team because Google's broken up into different <coughs> product areas. Yeah. And I was working on all of the infrastructure and I used to work with other researchers on it, and Kostya was one of the people who was very interested in the technology and in how things worked, and in helping me do my job, and then I helped him do his job, and we just became close that way. That's cool. So you sort of you you realised the mutual interest in things, and sort of it, yeah. it wasn't just you, you're the technical techie build the thing. It was kind of like he, he appreciated what you were doing, yeah, and, yeah, and fed into what you were doing rather than just seeing it as an like arm's length type. Thing. Pretty much, yeah. I think on my side the, the story is slightly different because <laughs> Adam was the only person who was visible uh, from the AV team. Everybody else, they just designed something, they quietly installed it somewhere, and we never saw them. <laughs> Which means that there is no feedback. The next lab is going to be built to a random design, kind of to random requirements. And there is no way to understand how everything works. And everything that researchers need from, in terms of methodology or just how a specific team works, it was never kind of expressed in the, uh, explicitly, and the AV team never even thought about taking that on board. So Adam, so Adam, Adam was the only person in like, the whole company who actually talked to researchers, and I think this is how we started to work yeah, together. Pretty much, yeah, pretty much, yeah. So you used a user-centered de design approach to design a usability lab. Exactly, yeah, which you'd think should have been part of the course and wasn't being done. 
yeah, yeah. Um, in the AV world, the concept of users is very distant from the people who design things. Yeah, and the people that pay for them. And the people that pay for them. Yeah. They take a very engineering-led approach, which I used to do way, way back when I was designing boardrooms and meeting rooms. Mm -hmm. A group of experts would sit around a table and design something and make it and ship it, and then that was it. Yeah. We never saw a single human using it. And we were, so we never got we never got any negative feedback. We never learned any problems. There were no problems because we never asked. Everyone loved our table. They loved our boardroom. Exactly. They, they loved our kit out and our control. Hundred percent success yeah. rate because we never asked if anyone actually liked them, if they used them, what problems they had, what what they were learning, what workarounds they were using. We just didn't use a user centered design process from the outset, and we didn't even do any basic feedback gathering at the end. Yeah. yeah. We launched something and walked away the same day and never looked back. So what inspired you to take that approach once you got into Google? My whole view of how things are built it was changed. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I realised that the way I'd been building things and the way that everyone in my industry at the time, my old industry, built things was backwards. Um, we were starting with solutions yeah. and then applying them. We weren't looking for what people needed, how, they, how we should approach solving problems for people. So I just started to flip the process and then learned that what I was doing was creating a, a user-centered design process in, in my world. Wow. And yeah, because anyone that's tried to buy a sort of office furniture knows what it's like to sort of like, I've got to find the stuff and it's terrible, but you know, it's the best thing that fits in my room and things like that. And yeah, exactly. You know, I've been, I tried to redesign our lab and like getting off the shelf stuff that works is just a pain in the what's it. So. Yeah. Um, cool. And so uh, I suppose b before we go into sort of what you're doing now, just sort of thinking back, what inspired you to end up in your sort of related your field? Like, was there a sort of epiphany moment or was there a childhood icon that you looked up? You know, like, you know, I got into UX because I like Star Trek. And sort of <laughs> I, I like technology. I like cool stuff. So that's why I sort of gravitate towards that. I mean, what about you guys? Was there any, any decisive moment? That it's a bit different for me. My first degree was in English. Oh, okay. um, hence the link into theatre yeah. and I always saw myself as being in the humanities mm -hmm. and then quickly learned that I was much more engineering minded and much more technology minded yeah. um, but I was also very interested in people so I, this is the first time I ever thought of it this way but I suppose if you put people and technology together you get UX, you get user experience, you get labs yeah. maybe that's how I ended up here, I'm not sure okay but yeah, so, so, but you, you sort of the roundabout with the humanities thing, which is quite an, an interesting thing, designing for theatres and things like that. Yeah. You know, you know, to think about audiences and backstage, front of house, yeah, and that yeah. stuff, which kind of informs what you're doing now, I suppose. Quite possibly, yeah. 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 And, and what about yourself? I've just realised, by the way, that we came to use UX research from two different ends. So you started <laughs> with our in, in English degree, right? So I started with computer science. <laughs> <laughs> we met in the middle. But then I started to work as a researcher, and you started to work as AV. <laughs> so we swapped, and then we yeah. met. <laughs> so basically, you both coveted each other's careers, and here you are. Sort yeah. of, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Um, cool. And do you have any sort of uh, epiphany moments, or any, any reason that got you there? Or? So, in the last couple of years in Google, a lot of companies from outside started to come to us, just informally asking us to share something we can share that was, wasn't under NDA. And one of the things that everybody was interested in were the technical solutions about how to build a lab, how yeah. to build a lab that actually works, how to build a lab that researchers actually can understand and control, that doesn't require like one extra hour in the morning when you go to your study to prepare everything. Yeah, we've all suffered that. Right? <laughs> yeah. And three extra hours after you finish your study to download everything, to change the naming, upload somewhere, cut the video, and so on. So we 
we shared what we again what we could in Google, but then we realized that a lot of people asked what else they can do, and we always thought there is, there must be a company somewhere in the world yeah. specializing in building Unix labs. So we tried to to Google that for a very long time. We couldn't find anything. <laughs> Here we are. Yeah. So, so that was the germination of UXstudy.com. It was this kind of like you know all these informal chats and people asking you know, how the hell do we make a lab? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. we realised that people needed it. Mm -hmm. and we could do it, we couldn't do it while we were still at Google. Yeah, and so that's where you sort of went off and branched out on your own. Yeah. And, and here we are today. Um, yeah. Yeah, and um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing story. And I think from the sounds of it, you've got quite a lot of buzz going on in London and beyond. About yeah, yeah, we now, we now build labs, um, well, ostensibly globally, mostly in North America and Europe at the moment. Okay. We're starting to talk to people in, in the Middle East and other areas. Yeah, because I think there's more demand over there now. Sort of thing, so. It's yeah. growing everywhere, basically, because research is blooming. And off the back of research, the technology and infrastructure for research is, is blooming as well. Yeah. So I, I suppose to kind of uh, coming back to your Google days, um, right, I suppose my next question was, how long have you been designing usability labs? So, For me, uh, over 10 years. Uh, I, I don't know exactly when I did my first one, but it was, it was more than 10 years ago. Okay, and did you have any sort of, um, well, how did you learn to do it? So, well, like, like I said, I started out with a very engineering-led approach. I sat down with a pen and paper, I remember sitting in uh, an office in New York. Yeah. I did talk to some researchers to begin with and got an idea of what they needed to do. So I did some very basic research, but extremely minimal and nowhere near good enough. Yeah. And then I sat down with a pen and paper and I thought, I know this, I'll put that box and that box and that box. Yeah. And in a very engineering-led way, I plugged some boxes together, yeah. built a prototype and said, there we go, I've built a lab now. <laughs> and, and, and it worked. Thankfully, I was starting my journey into UX enough that I went and tested it. Yeah. And I went and tested it on researchers and I quickly found out that my wonderful, beautiful thing that I designed and built just did not meet the minimum level for yeah. it to work as a, as a functioning lab. Yeah. Um, the boxes worked, the AV system worked, it was not usable as a lab. It didn't meet the needs the, of the researchers, of, of the users of the lab. So, so they, wouldn't, they weren't able to record things straightforward. They, they, they would require like a month's worth of training to figure it out. And exactly, yeah. It, it was difficult to use. It wasn't reliable. It wasn't easy to understand. Um, <clears throat> it didn't necessarily do... It, it did the basic functions people needed. If you, if, I, if you just described it in the very simplistic terms that old me did, yeah. well, you need to record. You need to stream. You need to mix two video feeds. It could do those things. It could do the very basic, simple things. Yeah. What it didn't do was work as a lab. Yeah. It didn't meet the minimum standard that researchers needed for it to, to be usable for usability studies and for testing for design sessions. <coughs> Excuse me. Thankfully, I learned very quickly that my approach was wrong. Yeah. And I flipped, like I said, I flipped it around and that I, I threw away what I did. I went and sat down and spent a lot more time with users, with researchers, with designers who'd be using the space, yeah. and started with what they needed, and worked my way backwards and ended with the technology. My second set of labs I built were far, far better. So it was that early days, you still figure out, you, you still realise, well, you still involved the users, but to a lesser degree, you kind of built a minimum viable product, per se, yeah, and yeah. that didn't quite work for them. Did you manage to refine that one, or is it too late at that point? Um, 
I threw I threw that design out. The, the, my right. first lab design. I, I've I've later learned by visiting a lot more labs over the past ten or twelve years while I've been doing this. Yeah. That my first design much more closely matches most of the labs we see in other places. Yeah. Because they're all designed by engineers with an engineering focus. Yeah. So I, so yeah, it, it's like even though you realised it wasn't appropriate, a lot of places still have that because that's someone else has put it in, and they're like, well, there you go. That's that's what you've asked for. Very often, yeah. it's because. People can't do this themselves. Yeah. So a research agency needs a lab building or a set of labs. They can't physically build it themselves. So they do the only thing available to them. They go to an audiovisual company who work in the way they work. Yeah. They design things. They're great at designing a meeting room because they've got so many of them. They know what they are. They build a really good meeting room. Yeah. For a lab, they build a meeting room with some more cameras. <laughs> and it doesn't work. It yeah. doesn't meet the minimum level. So it's like the first labs I built. They just aren't good enough. Yeah, and and because the labs, the people commissioning the labs don't know any better, they might just kind of go along with it because well, at that point they've paid for it, they've got what they've asked for, and there's not much they can do about it's it. It's the only option available to yeah. them very often because they don't have the facility to design things in the other way to design them using the user center process. So, in terms of the sort of evolution, I mean, did before we go on to that, did you sort of research anything like there's that? There's that green book with the hideous uh, how to design a usability lab. Have you seen that one? Um, oh, the one from the early 90s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I can't remember who it's by. I, I read it a long time ago, but it was from like 1993. Yeah, so, like it, but, but there's, uh, there's no resources like that that you can recommend to people. It's like that, I mean, that book, I mean, it tells you where to put a pot plant and a printer. So I think that's, <laughs> that's, that's probably this engineering approach. But did, did you have any resources that you looked, in, looked to or sort of mentored to guide you or anything? Not or? back then, no. So it was all primary research. It was all me learning the process and d designing the process as I went along. So on the job. Yeah. Of, yeah. Sort of trial and error until you get there. Well, not trial and error, but, you know. But yeah. 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 yeah iterative. Iterative. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> cool. And um, what about in terms of technology? So obviously that was kind of the... Uh, late 90s, early noughties or something, and now we're 2010s. Oh, no, yeah. well, it was like the late 2000s. Yeah, so has technology changed much since you've started, or has it remained con constant? So as Kostya said earlier, um, way back when, people had a tripod on a camera. Yeah. Now, most people have a better camera on a tripod. <laughs> or on so, some plastic boxes, in my case. Yeah. But they have a, they have a 4K camera now, mm -hmm. but the actual way they're doing the research hasn't really changed. The, the research methodologies have. Yeah. We've, we've refined how we do our research. We've, we've learned a lot more. We've created new ideas and concepts in the research world. Yeah. What we haven't done is develop the technology to match them. Okay. So um, technology has come on a lot, mm -hmm. but it's still boxes. Yeah. It's still this box that does this function and that box that does that function. No one, as far as we know, we're the only company making technology specifically for research in terms of hardware. Yeah. Some people might make cameras, some people might make adapters. We're the only people who make a research platform. We yeah. think, we haven't found anyone else yet. Yeah, I mean, you'd find, I mean, yeah, you'd, you'd, I'm sure that would come up if you'd Googled it, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and when you were in Ru Russia or a sort of previous world, did you des ever design labs, or is it only after working with Adam that you've kind of taken that on? <coughs> I think I've never designed labs specifically, like mm -hmm. as a lab, mm -hmm. but in an agency you always need to follow what your clients need, yeah. right? so which, which means that you apply all the research methodologies in all different po possible contexts, yeah. which means that you need some kind of research infrastructure. Yeah. Be it can be in the office or in the field, or it can be a mix, or it can be remote studies and so on. So I did experiment with a lot of things, but 
I wouldn't call it building labs. So basically, I put my first camera on the first tripod in 1999. <laughs> <laughs> Before I started to work with Adam, I don't yeah. think that it was, was kind of technology-wise, I don't think it was anything interesting that anybody, anybody else can learn from. So it was kind of, you did what you needed to do for the project and moved on to the next project sort of thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, like thinking that next time I'll definitely find that <laughs> solution for, for research, but the now, now I don't have, <laughs> have time yet. Interesting that what you asked about uh, how we started to, to build labs, I think my story was slightly different because I started from research perspective mm -hmm. and I always wanted to look at the big, big, bigger picture. Like for example, uh, the largest issue in the research in big companies is that research is not scalable. Yeah. If you have two researchers, you, you, you hire another one, kind of the scope of your work can, can increase five times. Yeah. So just synergy between two people. If you hire another person, the same story again. Yeah. But if you have 20 people and you hire another 20, okay. kind of it's, your productivity actually it doesn't increase in even 100%, because it increases like maybe like 50% or something. If you grow from 80 to, to 160, it's even worse. Yeah. It's mostly because as soon as there are no standards in terms of neither methodology nor infra research infrastructure, all researchers work in a completely different, different way, yeah. which means that if you have a product team with 30 researchers, they're going to report in, in absolutely different ways. Yeah. Uh, God forbid if they are distributed geographically, which means that, that means that they use absolutely different technology to, to record everything. Yeah. Which means that if you want to conduct a study, let's say in three geographical locations, good luck. Like you need to spend a couple of months just organizing everything. So it's not uh, kind of a typical process you go through. It's a, it's a whole project. Yeah. You prepare the project, that's the end of the project. Then when you want to conduct the next study, you start your project once start from new, right? Yeah. So you plan everything once again, which for small companies is just it's a hurdle for big companies. It's a huge stopper mm -hmm. because companies like Facebook, Google, Amazon, and so on. The biggest issue is that they cannot find enough research resources to support uh, all the products they're working on. Yeah, we can. You don't need to to sell the research idea. They know that research is yeah is, is extremely important. They just cannot build that. Yeah, and the biggest problem here was when I started to experiment with different research methodologies to be able kind of to attack that problem from multiple angles. Like for example, one emerging research methodology is uh, you conduct studies on a very short notice with your design team. Mm -hmm. They have an idea, next day you conduct the study, yeah. just to give them some feedback. Just sort of snapshot your testing. Exactly. Yeah. So for that, you cannot go to the field. You need a lab. Mm -hmm. You need to bring your product team to the lab so they can see with their own eyes what's going on. Yeah. For that, you need a lab that actually works, that can work tomorrow and you don't need to spend couple of days just preparing the lab, finding where the hell the camera is, where research, the previous researcher put it somewhere, uh, where this cable is not connected to that, that input and so on. You just need to be able to walk into the lab and in five minutes to start research. Yeah. So this is how we started to work with Adam. Another thing is, after such kind of studies, another method, new methodology is, when you conduct your study, you need to be able to present within an hour. Mm -hmm. So we started to experiment with different types of uh, software and hardware to be able to do that. And I found a lot of things that kind of people experimentally built, built in Google. And when I, when I asked who actually built it, it was Adam again. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this is how we started kind of to meet more and more often inside yeah. the company on completely different projects, yeah, everything yeah. related to making research scalable and allowing researchers 
to conduct research instead of spending one third of their time on just reconnecting cables and being very overpaid technicians. Yeah, and getting frustrated because every time they walk into a different lab, it's completely different. And yeah, yeah. and it might or might not work. Yeah, I mean, that should be our next ISO standard, is a standard for usability labs. You know, quite possibly. If, if you've got the, the, the ear of the ISO organisation, I think that would be quite very popular. <laughs> well, not for the AV companies, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at least they'll know what they're building here then. So quite possibly, yeah. 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 Um, cool. I mean, I mean, it's great that you've both come in from these different angles. So, so from the person that's using it on a regular basis and knows the, the struggles that the team are having to the person that's building it and realising, learning from this insight and things. And that's mm -hmm. how you've kind of evolved to where you are now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, talking of where you are now, uh, perhaps you could talk me through, you know, you said your early lab was a few boxes that kind of held together and did something, but not quite well. Yeah. I mean, what's your most recent lab that you've designed? Obviously, MBA permitting and whatever, but if you can anonymize it, then maybe talk about how you, how you now approach this challenge. So we don't just build a lab now. We build a platform. <coughs> and what I mean by that is that re researchers don't need a lab. They don't need a piece of technology. Mm -hmm. They need something to help them with their research. Yeah. And most of our clients are big international companies. So we build at scale. Yeah. So we don't build them a lab in a office. Mm -hmm. We build them a set of labs globally that work as a network and help the research teams to work better. Wow. And what we mean by that is, going back to your question about most recent labs, we're building a set of labs for a large global technology firm at the moment. Yeah. And um, one of the most recent ones we did was in their London office. Mm -hmm. And <coughs> it's the technology is exactly the same as all their other labs. If a researcher walks into one of their offices in California or New York or London or Paris, they'll find the same system built in the same way and they do their research and leave. And then from that point on, everything is scalable and we can build 100 labs for them yeah. in exactly the same way. But we started out by building one lab for them, yeah. knowing that we could say to them, when you're happy with this, we will build more and they will scale. Right. So... Um, in terms of how we build, how we built this lab, it's all built around our, pr our main product, which is Lab in a Box, yeah. <coughs> which is a, a usability lab system that goes into a room. But all of our systems now scale and talk to each other. So uh, one example is um, we can now stream to any system. It used to when we first built Lab in a Box, it had a streaming system built in. Yeah. We can now talk to standard streaming networks. So. If you're a big company and you happen to use Cisco Telepresence, for instance, yeah. we can send our signal into Cisco Telepresence for streaming. Yeah. Same with uh, GoQ Meeting or Skype or anything like that. So that allows companies to share their research globally in whatever way they're already allowed to do. Mm -hmm. um, this helps companies to come over their, <coughs> overcome sorry, their uh, problems with security, with uh, sign off from IT teams, from all these other people who are involved in everything just on the fringes of your technology. Yeah. If you're a research team, you have your technology you bring in. In our case, it's our lab, but it's yeah. other things as well. But as everyone knows, you can't just use something in a company or in a government department or in a university. You have to get permission to use this, to use that type of thing, to use these certain protocols. Add it to our domain. Exactly, yeah, all yeah. of that. So we, we make systems that require as little as possible interaction with all these other teams yeah. to make life simpler for researchers. Basically, everything we try to do is to take work away from researchers, not give them more. 
Yeah. And we find that most traditionally built UX labs add more burden, not not take it away. Yeah. So, so like going back to what you said at the beginning, earlier on, the sort of more <coughs> traditional labs just you know they allow you to record things, but they're not a very nice experience for the users. Yeah. Whereas ideally, your platform provides a pleasant experience and a consistent experience. So wherever they walk, wherever it is in the you know in the world, yeah, it, it will run exactly the same. So we, we do a lot of research on researchers, yeah. and um, we have done for a very long time. And two things we find from that. One was what Costi already mentioned, which mm -hmm. is that we find that anecdotally around a third of a researcher's time is taken up by poor infrastructure. Yeah. That's not just labs, it's other things as well, but it's, it's mainly the technology of their labs. Um, things like, the, the phrases that come up a lot are crawling around looking for cables under yeah. tables, or walking into the lab to find something broken, all yeah. these things. That <coughs> needed to turn up two hours before the session to make sure... Exactly, that that's just a waste of two hours of a researcher's life, yeah. really. So, if you're a company who, you think you employ 100 researchers, you don't. You employ... 70 researchers and 30 very overpaid, underskilled technicians. Yeah. So those companies are wasting millions of dollars a year by having poor infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And they could have invested a lot less than the salary of those 30 people up front yeah. and saved their time. And they didn't. Uh, we're finding now more and more big companies are realising this problem and are looking at ways to solve it. And yeah. obviously we are one of those ways. Yeah. Um, <coughs> the other thing we found through our research on researchers is that we expected in the early days of talking to people that researchers would come back with a list of features. Mm -hmm. We thought they'd come back and say, well, we want this many cameras and this, these computers and this. It wasn't that at all. People did mention that, but that was way down their priorities list. Yeah. Everyone said, we want things that are reliable. We want things that just work. Yeah. Because the researcher on, on doing the work recognises how much extra time it's taking that it should have taken. So reliability was their number one thing. Mm -hmm. So going back to your original question about the recent labs we've built, we focus very heavily on reliability. So if someone walks into a lab, it's working, yeah. and if they press a button, that button does the thing, and they can be 100% certain that the feedback it gives them is correct, and if they press record and it says it's recording, it's recording. Yeah. So it's, it's basically, rather than it being, oh, let's add some more bells and whistles and cameras and you know, computers and whatever, it's, no, let's get down to brass, ta brass tacks, we want it to be usable, yeah. we want it to do the thing it's meant to do. Don't get me wrong, we have all the bells and whistles yeah, as well, yeah. and, and our systems are very scalable, very scalable and very future-proof, Yeah. but that's secondary to us. The most important thing is that they just work, and that they give time back to research teams. Yeah, cool. And um, so... Adam mentioned researching the researchers. Was that where you stepped in as well? Was you sort of part of that process? Or? Um, yes. And again, from the research perspective, there is one extra side of that question, uh, which is if you look at the research from the company perspective, mm -hmm. from like the big picture, it's not really, in most of the cases, it's not really important how much you spend on research. Yeah. Because big companies conduct research only in cases when you can make like billions. Like yeah. for example, if your product costs five billion dollars, it's not really important if your lab costs only a million, and if you believe that UX research is crucial for this product. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to save like half a million dollars in a lab. Like, 
because anything you spend on that scale <coughs> is not even comparable to how much you can either lose or gain extra from UX research. So basically, investing in the infrastructure is nothing compared to the profit that could be achieved from working exactly. on that scale. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But yeah. that happens only if you see the whole picture, because what usually happens uh, when researchers speak to EV people or external or internal, doesn't matter, mm -hmm. they convey a list of requirements and then technicians or technical people, they take over. And they know, for example, that a professional HDMI splitter costs, let's say, $3,000, mm -hmm. which means that they're not, go not, not going to pay five for good installation. And they're yeah. not, not going to pay, I don't know, another 10 a year for maintenance. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to pay another 20 or 200,000 for design. Yeah. They compare everything to how much uh, the technology costs. The constituent elements rather than exactly. the Exactly. Yeah. Which means that at the, at the end, you have kind of meeting room problem. When you have uh, a lot of meeting rooms, they kind of work, but the reliability and the ease of use is not even close to what you actually need. Yeah. With meeting rooms, it's fine because uh, in most of the cases, you have multiple of them. Mm -hmm. So if one meeting room doesn't work, you just go to another one. Yeah. And maybe a couple of days or a couple of weeks later, a technician come to the room, they might or might not fix that, so it's not an issue. Yeah. With usability labs, it's a completely different story because as Adam said, reliability and ease of use are the most important things. And the cost of failure is not even what Adam said. It's, it's, it is millions of dollars that are wasted on research uh, salary, mm -hmm. on researchers who don't conduct research, who reconnect cables instead. Mm -hmm. But the biggest part of not having, the biggest cost of not having a good lab is how much the company loses on not conducting research or slowing down research for the pro product that costs billions of dollars. Yeah. So, kind of seeing that cost on the UX, uh, on, the, on the technical side, it al almost never happens in big companies. Yeah. They always try to save a couple of thousands here and there, and the result, there is a lab that usually doesn't work, but people pat on the back saying, oh, but we saved $10,000, $100,000, or a couple of million dollars. Yeah, yeah. And then they waste half a billion because, or they lose the product, or they lose the competition uh, because, because of that. Yeah, yeah. So I think on the researcher side, the biggest question was how to convert the company requirements, not, not just researchers' requirements, the company's requirements to reliability and scalable research into specific technical kind of characteristics of the space yeah. or of the, of the technology that researchers use. I think this is how we started to see building labs in the end. Yeah. yeah. Cool. <coughs> I mean, yeah, it sounds like you've kind of, you identified a problem and you come up with a solution, which is kind of what we do as a living. Well, exactly, yeah. You yeah. Know, and, and it sounds like, you know, the fact that it's being adopted on a global scale by organizations, it seems to be, you know, it's working well. So it's, far, so yeah. far, definitely. And is that the most complex um, lab that you've built so far, this sort of you know, global rollout, or is, have you done anything a bit more tricky? We built, um, uh, the most unique lab we built was for an education company, okay. and they wanted to be able to test entire classrooms. Wow. So <coughs> they wanted to be able to do basic usability studies, people sat at a computer with a mouse and a keyboard, and they wanted to be able to bring classrooms full of kids or adults in yeah. and test the, the education experience of using, for instance, software on a, on a smart board or things like that. Oh, that's cool. So, again, all based around Lab in a Box because we make the product very flexible. Yeah. But we design each lab in a slightly different way. So it's, it isn't just like we do a cookie-cutter design. Yeah. We take the platform, we adapt it to the, the remit from each client. And in this case... 
we designed the whole room and the whole space in a way that lent itself to a, the range of studies they were going to do. Mm -hmm. So um, <coughs> we don't just work on the technology. We consult and design on the entire thing. So we do the architectural design, we do the uh, furniture, we do the carpets, we do the aesthetics and colours. Yeah. And the reason is that people need it. You need to do all of these things when you're building a lab. Um, we find that research teams or research managers uh, decide to build a lab, they sign off and they get whoever needs to to sign a cheque and then yeah. they think they're getting a lab and they don't realise that that's the start of a very long journey where they're going to have to deal with facilities people, with electricians, with decorators, with all these other way, all these other things that are involved yeah. and it takes a very long time and suddenly your research team are actually project managers something yeah. they're probably not that trained at and not that well skilled at then they're project managing a very complex thing and we we have learned all these other skills and taken on these other skills because we needed to yeah so going back to the to the classroom lab <coughs> this company can now um and they very regularly do they do daily studies in there across a range of products they can quickly switch between the different methodologies and the different focuses that they're, they're using the space for yeah and they can intersperse design work with classroom studies. So in the morning, they can have a, a, a room full of kids doing a, a, do it, pretending to be studying, and they can be studying on, the, the study itself, the UX study, can be on software and it can be on usability and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And then after lunch, that same room can be a design sprint on that product. Yeah. On what they've learned in the morning, they're now implementing iterative design. Yeah, just because the, the space has been designed in such a way that it can be flexibly adapted yep. and things like that. Exactly. Brilliant. I think we can share, we can name the company because uh, they shared that openly already. So okay. it's basically, yeah, it's Pearson, it's the largest education company in the world. Oh. And on the client side, it was uh, Nathan Harris, he is UX director. Yeah. Uh, he started as a researcher, so he knows everything that researchers need to do. So he was brilliant in terms of expressing all the requirements for the lab yeah and it was one of the our first clients so and we tried we, we did our best to, to build the best lab it was good great success in the company <coughs> it was opened by the ceo of the company who mm -hmm. flew specifically for london to open the lab uh it was launched about three years ago and nathan said that even till today uh people from other offices they come to the london uh, lab to have a tour to oh, the nice. lab yeah it was a great success because Pearson is a very traditional company, so they tried to turn into more digital, more kind of customer-oriented model, and they need that feedback from, from the lab. So now he has probably one of best labs in Europe, definitely. Yes, yeah, certainly, yeah. So it's kind of, and by having this sort of showcase lab, you can kind of, you know, sh show the value of do doing things properly so that the rest of Pearson can kind of buy into the idea sort of thing. Yeah, yes. yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. And we find a lot of our clients doing that, that they get the best space in the office. Yeah. We go in and we, we they, they have a project to redesign an office, let's say, or design, redesign a floor. Yeah. And we do the lab portion. Mm -hmm. And the research team end up with the best bit of the office. Everyone wants their lab. Everyone else has just got the cheapest thing in the catalogue. Well, they, they've yeah. got meeting rooms built by AV companies exactly, that are probably yeah. fine, but not particularly great. They're yeah. very functional and they're very engineer designed. Yeah. Everyone sees this room up the corner that's really, really useful and really good, and everyone wants to use it. Yeah. And it's like, nope. <laughs> well, depending on the, the diary management or whatever. Exactly, yeah. yeah.
It's funny, Nathan said that when the, the, the lab wasn't finished, there were like basically boxes with, with rubbish there. Mm -hmm. He said that researchers still prefer to work from that space comparing to, to their own office or meeting rooms because lighting was better, acoustics was better. Wow. It just felt much nicer, more relaxing than yeah. in the office. So the, the sort of um, the, the client experience and the, the, the experience of the space is a valuable thing for people to consider as well when designing a lab. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think it's, uh, it's both designing the space and functionality of the space as well because yeah. it feels like right now there is a currency that everybody uses inside companies and the currency is meeting rooms <laughs> so if you want to do something like the first question is are you going to reduce the number of meeting rooms or increase that yeah. and if, if, if it's the first case then okay good luck <laughs> doing anything in the company it's, it's basically a blocker so in our case uh, one extra advantage of building a usability lab properly is we can actually convert a space into multifunctional space. You, you don't lose one meet or two meeting rooms. Mm -hmm. You actually get meeting rooms and design sprint spaces and space for presentation and usability lab and a yeah. couple of other things as well. So it's, yeah, you're not losing a meeting room. You're gaining a lot more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A lab isn't just for research. Yeah. And what we find is that research teams are heavily invested in the research, as they should be. Yeah. So they think of designing a space for usability testing and maybe a card sort. Yeah. But what they're actually going to do in there is a lot more research and design activity. Mm -hmm. So they're going to be, after they've done their, their formative research or whatever, whatever they're working on, after that they're going to be doing iterative design based on the, out, the, 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 the products of that. Yeah. Uh, but they don't really tend to think of that in the design phase of the space. Yeah. So one piece of advice we very often give to people is make your spaces as multifunctional as you can. They are, they are primarily spaces for research. It's a lab where you're doing usability testing or whatever, whatever type of research you're doing. But you're going to be doing so many other things. So keep those things in mind when you're designing it and don't limit yourself. Don't yeah. limit it to just someone sat at a computer clicking on a mouse. Yeah, there's so much more to it than that sort of thing. Yeah. It's one reason we've ended up doing lots of other things, like we now manufacture furniture and supply furniture for labs, because just as we said, we couldn't find... We assumed back in the day that there'd be someone building labs doing a good job of it, and there wasn't, so we did it. We assumed there'd be someone making furniture tailored for design spaces and research spaces. Yeah. We couldn't find it. So we're now sat at a table that we, we supply yeah. that, that's specifically for design spaces. Yeah, but it, yeah just to point out, we're, we're doing this interview at um, the UX Studies HQ. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very pleased that these guys have managed to host them today. And I got to tour of their office. And it's a wonderful view over the Regent, is it the Regent Regent's Canal? Canal yeah. yeah, there you go. So yeah, so you, you know, things are going well. Uh, yeah, pretty yeah. well, yeah. yeah. So um, I suppose I think we've been talking up until now that about usability labs as they're a good thing and that, you know, everyone needs one. I mean, my next question is, are dedicated usability labs for everyone or are there situations where, you, you know, they might not be appropriate? I think it really depends on, on the product and on the team mm -hmm. because, especially for big companies, if the company innovates in any area, you don't just need usability studies. Yeah. Right? You don't need just field studies where you polish all their, all their kind of final details. You need a very quick feedback on, on the general idea. Like what usually happens early in the design process, designers or engineers or whoever it is, have a lot of ideas about how the product should work, how it should look like, what functionality should be there and so on. 
And then one of the biggest and the most complicated questions in, the, in their uh, development process is how do you define what combination of features uh, you keep in the real product, in the first prototype? Yeah. There are multiple ways to do that. Like, for example, people can vote, mm -hmm. which is definitely not the best way. <laughs> uh, not reuse the sentence, is it? <laughs> if it was that simple, it would be different world. I've seen so many products where the design team just took a vote on something and that was the decision. They draw straws. Yeah. yeah. Or another solution can be the most important person in the company decides what they want, mm -hmm. which is probably not the best uh, solution either. It tends to be people who think they're the next Steve Jobs, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I do my training sites, I've got one which is kind of a user-centered approach and one which is kind of a management-led approach. And it's just like, oh, I've got this idea. You've got to make it for me and sort of thing. And I've got these slides of like people getting, like the designers getting more and more dejected. <laughs> they just at the end slap some lipstick on the pig or whatever at the end. Yeah. And it's kind of like, whereas it should be like, I've got an idea informed by users. Let's find out if they want it. And yeah, exactly. Like exactly. Yeah. yeah. So... In this case, uh, getting early feedback from sort of humanoids, you don't need specific researchers or specific uh, participants, sorry. Uh, you just need people who resemble real users and yeah. who can give your initial feedback on their on very generic kind of foundation, foundational idea of, of your product. And in this case, you do need labs because you need to bring your decision makers in the, in the observation room. Yeah. You need them to be able to see the feedback because kind of filtering feedback from researchers usually don't work yeah if you sit in a room with a design team or with a product team if you have like five people in the room you have like 25 different opinions yeah, yeah. so if you come with your one extra opinion as a, as a researcher yeah good luck convincing anybody else if you allow them to see what was going on with, with participants it's a completely different story so, so that's on the big corporate side. What about sort of, uh, you know, the startup world or, you know, smaller consultancies and things like that? Do you mm -hmm. think it's always a good idea to have a lab or is it kind of uh, on a needs? You know, because, you know, there are places where you can hire a lab depending on what you need. You know, so, it, you know, it, it basically, is it for everyone or is it kind of, you know, some situations would be more appropriate than others? As well? You don't just do research like we were saying. Yeah. So you need space, you need a lab where you can do various things. Yeah. Everyone, need, everyone who's making any kind of product needs to do research. That's yeah. a very simple thing. The type of research varies depending on what you're doing, but mm -hmm. everyone needs to do research into the thing they're working on. Yeah. Most people, like Kostya was saying, need to do lots of research in different ways to even figure out where their focus should be. Yeah. But you can't do that by only going out and doing uh, field anthropological studies, as, as people like to call them, but field work. What about guerrilla testing and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. You, you, can, you can do some of that, but it's much more difficult to get good data out, to get useful things. If you're just doing very quick, basic testing of a thing, go out and sit in a cafe, grab people, talk to them. That's absolutely necessary. That's a good idea in certain circumstances. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> in other circumstances, you want to be going into people's homes and figuring out how they do certain things in their house or in a comfortable place. Yeah. You want to be going into workplaces. These are all necessary methodologies, but the one thing that everyone does need is a space to sit with their design team, do some research, look at other research that they're bringing in from the field, yeah. and then do iterative design on them. 
that's your lab. So it's the theatre part. It's the sort of you know getting everyone there to see the results and sort of see the users suffering or enjoying <laughs> it, depending on the you know what's yeah. been designed. So that's the value of having a dedicated space. And I think when when I sort of you know people ask about the interaction lab, that's what I tell them. I'm like you know you can do all this outside stuff. But, you know, you still need, at the end of the day, somewhere for the design team to watch what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's the value of having a lab. Um, yeah. So yeah. It's, so it's, and, but also being able to, like you say, if it's a multifunctional space, they can do all sorts of designer things as well. Which but is as Costa touched on before, there are two conflicting things in any organisation. It's you want your research to be as close to your users as you can. Yeah. You want your research to be as close to your product team as you can. Yeah. And those two things are, are exact opposites. Mm. So you need a happy medium where... You do both. You do research that's very close to your users. In the and wild. Yeah. Out in the wild or wherever, outside of the doors of your office. And you do your research where you bring your users in. Yeah. Um, because the value of having the person who builds a product, whether they're a software person or a product owner or manager or, or someone much more senior, like a director or someone, the value of having them sitting in a room focused on users using their thing is extremely high. Yeah. The possibility of doing that, if you're only doing research in people's homes, is extremely low. So you have to strike a balance between the two. Yeah. I think in addition to that, when we just started, we thought that we built labs for researchers. I think now we changed our, our mind slightly. Very much so, yeah. I think we built labs for companies. Oh, okay. Because we still, our end users are still researchers, so we still uh, conduct research on researchers to understand how make the lab easy, easy to use and efficient for them. But the goal is to incorporate that user feedback into the design and the production process in the company. It's not only for researchers because one of the biggest problems in, in management, if you manage a big team, production team, uh, mm -hmm. is how do you convey the direction to all the people in the company? Why there is a decision to build this specific set of features and how this specific feature should be imp implemented in a, in a particular way in the, in the product. And then basically you have two options. You can, have, you can have either a person who knows how to build that and you just spread that knowledge through the whole company. But there is usually a hurdle there that everybody is going to interpret that, that message in a completely different way. Yeah. Or you allow people to see why we actually build that product, who the actual uh, end user is. And then you can use your knowledge and your unique skills kind of to interpret what you see into how to embed the solution for this specific use case in the product and you don't need to rely solely on the boss said so yeah right so you understand why, why, why you do that so this is one of the projects uh, we're, we're conducting right now we use our technology to allow uh, a startup it's not actually a startup it's a couple of years old already we allow everybody in the company everybody in the product team to be able to see how researchers use their, their, their product all the time. Mm -hmm. We conduct uh, bi-weekly studies where the whole product team uh, watches how the users react to, their, to using their product. And it's completely unique for them because they've never had that experience. And I think right now we see building labs as a solution for that kind of cultural change in the company. It's not technical or architectural Thing that you're working on yeah it's kind of how you change this life cycle on the product to include the constant user feedback and all you need to build architecture 
technology-wise and infrastructure-wise to make it happen. Well, like, so you've gone from focus on the researchers to the researchers' context within the wider organisation to make the organisation user-centred. Yeah, and exactly. And kind of, you know, that it, you know, it's being able to see things regularly and iterate, iterate on it is, a, you know, a massive value to yeah. people and it will kind of it result in better products, which is kind of what we preach on a daily basis. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I agree with you that labs are important. I was just saying agent products. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, because, uh, you know, some people come to the lab and they're like, oh, why do we need this? We can do guerrilla testing. It's just like, you can, but you're not going to get the same impact as if you stick to major stakeholders and doing DOP. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, so I think we're kind of moving on to the advice for people setting up a lab stage of the... Uh, uh, the podcast. Uh, so you've kind of alluded to a few things already, but maybe if you can go recap what organisations need to consider when setting up their own labs. So, so if they can't uh, go for your kit for whatever reason, uh, in general, what sort of th- were the important things people could, should consider? Start off by focusing on the space. If, you, if you're going to build a space, don't just run to technology. Yeah. Think about things like the, the physical journey of the user, the participant who's coming into your lab. Mm-hmm. If you're, Let's say you're a company with a big office. Can we build our lab by the reception? It's a simple thing, but it saves you a lot of hassle. In the, You're going to have your lab there for many years, probably, and it'll save you having to escort people through an office. It'll save you having to walk them past sensitive things. Yeah. And it's just much more comfortable for those people. Um, one of the there are many issues of bringing you participants into an office. Yeah. There's the, the bias and things like that, but one of them is they're just out so out far so far outside their comfort zone. Yeah. They've come to an unfamiliar place, probably on an unfamiliar journey. They're sitting in an office they don't really know. Yeah. So try and once they're there, try and keep them as calm and happy as possible. Sitting in a reception area with a can of coke or a cup of tea is a lot nicer than being dragged through an office full of people they don't recognise and sitting on a stool. Yeah. So think about that kind of journey. And then once people get to the space, think about the comfort of everyone involved because there are many users of the lab. Mm-hmm. There are the researchers who are the primary users of the technology, but there's so many other people. There are the stakeholders who are going to come to an observation room or, if you don't have one, to a meeting room nearby or however they're observing the study. Yeah. Think about what they need and the artefacts that they will be creating. So most people need to draw and doodle and they want to interact with the session in some way. Mm-hmm. So simple thing is put whiteboards absolutely everywhere. Yeah. But not at the cost of the feel of the space. Yeah. Big plain white walls aren't particularly nice to be working in. I mean, we're in a room right now that has big white walls, but we're, we're going to redecorate. I quite like them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite boring in that regard. Um, so there's always this conflict between functionality of the space and the feel and aesthetic and comfort of the space. Yeah. So keep that in mind. So what, what I'm trying to allude to is um, don't run to technology. Yeah. Look, that's going to be very important, but start out with the lab and the, the, the feel of the space for the people who are going to be using it. Yeah. I think for me, when we started to work on the, in this, er- this area, the surprise was how many aspects Inter- interplay with each other. Like, for example, what Adam just mentioned, uh, white walls, or drawable walls. <coughs> you need to conduct studies in this, this in space, which means that you, your participants are going to use uh, different devices and screens. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to record the screen, yeah. which means that you, you'll have cameras somewhere. Yeah. Which means that if you install 
wrong type of lighting that creates uh, glares and too high co contrast, you won't be able to record anything. You'll yeah. be able to record white spots on the screen and black screen around. Speaking about white walls, if you install uh, drawable walls that are glossy, they just add a lot of uh, glare and a lot of reflections in the room. Yeah. So in this case, it's just impossible to find a space where you can, uh, angle where participants can sit, still sit and use their device without that glare on the screen. If you install matte walls, good luck trying to erase what you just draw on the, on the whiteboard because it's just impossible, it become, becomes a mess. Yeah. Then uh, you usually have an, a one-way mirror in there on one side. Again, wrong lighting and wrong walls and one-way one mirror becomes transparent in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. It's mostly not, mostly not about the mirror itself, though there are a lot of characteristics of the mirror that you can use to uh, pay attention to. But uh, lighting on both sides and direct direction of the lighting plays a huge role there. Yeah. We've seen so many labs where you cannot clearly see from the observation room, but you, the, best, the, the best observation is actually the observation space is actually the lab. So when uh, observers see it, they, they need to turn off the light completely, yeah. which makes the, that space completely unusable, which means that even if there are drawable walls, walls there, they cannot use them yeah. because otherwise the participants would see them. Then. You need to take, take care about acoustics as well because we've been to so many of our labs where observers do sit behind the one-way mirror but it's completely dark and then they cannot say anything yeah. because everything is uh, clearly be, clearly hearable on, on this side. So it's just lighting, walls and one-way mirror and everything plays together very closely. You just make one mistake in one of their uh, the aspects and the lamp, the whole space becomes in most of the cases unusable or very less kind of functional than it, it can be. And in addition to that, there is, uh, again, soundproofing, acoustics, furniture that needs to be specific, uh, lighting, audio infrastructure, visual infrastructure, IT infrastructure, and 20 other things. Like, start working, for as soon as we start working with facilities, you realize how different the process on their side is. Yeah. Like, for example, in so many cases, when we consulted companies on building labs, uh, the, the client didn't work with their facilities for the next, for the first couple of months because they, they assumed that it's just a meeting room. And so maybe I don't, can you share a couple of cases here because you know that the case much better about the status lab walls and... Yeah, so the one example is that we always specify that um, the only way to properly soundproof a wall inside an office, most offices are two concrete slabs. Yeah and you build a raised floor and a drop ceiling and your walls go only to the drop ceiling and the raised floor. Yeah. So sound can actually go around. But in a meeting room, that's not terrible. It's not good. Most meeting rooms, if you talk loudly, the people next door hear you. Yeah. But in a meeting room, like we said, the cost of that to the people is, is fairly low. In a usability lab, it's extremely high. If the people in the observation room can be heard the other side uh, by the participants, yeah. you might as well not do your study. Or you have to get everyone to be silent. And yeah. if they're sat there in silence in the dark, don't bother with an observation room. Just have them sat at their desk. Because yeah. one of the main reasons of bringing them together is to get those people in that observation space interacting about that product, about that study. Because they are the people who can improve it. Going back to what we said before, user research is all about improving your product and improving your company and increasing your productivity. You're not going to do that by bringing people to a dark room in silence. Yeah. So... We always, when we're designing spaces, we always specify 
at least the wall, ideally all walls, but at least the wall with the one-way mirror between the lab and the observation space is built triple skinned, slab to slab. Mm -hmm. This is very common language used by facilities and building people. They understand what it is. Yeah. But if the people on the client side don't convey the importance of that to the facilities team, when these big projects are happening, detail like that gets lost. So they're building 72 walls that are just normal. Yeah. Then there's this one weird one that's, that's down a slab to slab, so it just gets turned into a normal wall. Yeah, because people aren't paying attention or they just can't be bothered. Or they either thought it was a mistake or they thought it didn't matter or it, the importance wasn't stressed to them. So very often we find that at some point in the project, things like that change. Yeah. So no matter how detailed you are in your specifications, you have to manage the pro process end to end. You have to have someone working on it whose dedicated job is building that thing yeah. and checking at every stage with every team involved that they've understood the importance of X, Y and Z and the X, Y and Z are going to be implemented at the end. Yeah, and basically knocking on that wall, make sure it's what it's meant to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, Hold on guys, this is wrong, what are you doing? Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's interesting, like, I've always been a researcher and that thing in abstract is completely boring. What kind of wall it is, Kind of it's really boring. Kind of a painting. <laughs> I find it interesting. It's a slab to slab and so on. But I've always been on the receiving side of the of the result. Yeah. Like if you understand that your company cannot connect studies on a product that costs you five billion dollars because just space is not there. And the world is just one of the hundred probably decisions that you need to make mm -hmm. in the right way. Make two wrong decisions in the process and the space is less usable, which yeah. means that five billion product is not going to be improved very, very quickly. Yeah. So I've been on the receiving end at the end, so that puts everything into perspective and those boring details become extremely interesting. Yeah, that's it. It's kind of, you know, you need to know what to ask for in the first place and you need to be focused and driven enough to make sure that it's implemented properly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so going back to what, what you originally asked about advice for people, um, I suppose this is both helpful and unhelpful. It's a lot more complicated than you think. Yeah. You, you can't just design a lab if you've never done it before. Um, you don't get someone... I can drive a car. Yeah. I couldn't design a car. You don't get drivers to build cars. You don't get a chef to build a kitchen. Yeah. Don't get user researchers to build a user research lab. It does not work. The most common story for us is that we get brought in by companies that have grown... They've grown their, the whole company, they've grown the research team, they've scaled in a, in a way, and then at some point in the past, they've decided to build either a lab or, or many labs. Yeah. So they've gone to the research team and gone, build us some labs. Yet they wouldn't go to the receptionist and say, design a reception area. So why do they do it in the research world? Why do they think those people can suddenly wear all these other hats? Yeah. They're no good at it. It's no detriment to them. They're not trained at it. They shouldn't be good at it. Yeah, it's a whole different. If it's, a, I mean, it, yeah, they are, they can understand how to ask users what they need, etc., etc., etc. But having the AV knowledge, having the knowledge of building construction and all that exactly. sort of thing, is kind of a whole new kettle of fish that m people might not be aware of when they're initially setting these things up or you know taking this on 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 board. So I suppose our, our overarching advice is understand what you don't know and consult experts. Yeah. Um, <coughs> and treat it as a real project and manage it as a real project. It isn't a thing on the side. Yeah. You're not building a lab on Tuesday morning between seven and four. It's a very big, complicated thing. Treat it as such. So if you do, if you, if, if it is a consultancy out there and they're setting up their own lab or something like that, if you are to sort of throw it someone that someone's way, 
that person basically has to be taken off consultancy work because they're no power. Probably, I mean, to dedicate my, what what I would do in that situation is say to someone, "This is now fifty percent of your life, yeah. and Until it treat finishes. it as such." Yeah. Most people pick a researcher or a couple and say, "Do this, do this extra." Yeah. This little thing, whilst whilst also doing <coughs> project work and God knows what. Exactly. Yeah. So if, if someone wants to sort of, you know, be identified to take on such an initiative within an organisation, what sort of person would you suggest? Not a researcher. Mm. There, are, there are probably some researchers who are good at this type of thing, but they're very, very rare. Yeah. Researchers are really good at being researchers because that's what they're trained and experienced in. Yeah. So let them be researchers. Find someone who is an experienced project manager. Mm-hmm. Um, or someone who is has the time and the motivation to manage the other stakeholders. They don't need to know necessarily about construction, about AD, about all these other things. They need to be able to bring people together around the goal of building a good lab. Yeah. What we often find is that the, the, the project management itself of building labs, whether it's one in an agency or 107 in a big company, is, is often disparate. Yeah. Um, and what they really need is someone who's just focused on that one thing and that is their, their role and they're able to work with all the other teams and bring all the different stakeholders together. Yeah, so someone that can sort of juggle all these plates, uh, get everyone talking and has a good idea of what's going on. Yeah. Um, I mean, you mentioned they don't need to know about AD and things like that. I mean, would that be beneficial if, they, you know, if people to, would to identify someone? Yeah, um, I think I think it's certainly beneficial. It'd be beneficial if they were experts in all these areas. It's yeah. just that in the real world, very few people are experts in even one of those, let alone all twenty-seven different things they need to know. Yeah. Um, what you need is someone able to learn what they need in each of those areas yeah. to learn learn the basics of this and that and that and that, and be able to implement them at scale. Yeah. Implement them as a real project, not as a thing they're doing on the side. Yeah, so, go I think I would add that UX labs are significantly different from any other spaces people use. Like, even me- meeting rooms. So, meeting room is basically the most standard element in, in any office, right? And we just joke that we haven't seen good meeting rooms. Every now and then they just don't work. And, or they've, and they've been around for how long? You know? Yeah, like for, <laughs> forever, exactly. It's like, all meeting rooms are absolutely the same. Basically, like, we still cannot figure that out. With usability labs, where the activity is much more complicated and where researchers need to focus on another person rather than technology yeah. and they need to focus all the time. It's not like I focus on the, my participant five minutes in an hour and then I can, can deal with, with technology. It, it doesn't work like that, which means that the requirements are even more complicated. Like a couple of questions, or a couple of examples maybe we can give. Oh, um, there were so many different, different cases when the EV company or the internal EV department designs a lab mm-hmm. and the requirement from researchers can be, oh, we need to be able to start a study and we need to be able to, be able to switch between cameras. Yeah. When they have the lab a year later, you can do that, but you can do it from the observation room. Yeah. Or you need to stand up, go to, 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 your, to your control panel, select this thing from, from the drop-down menu, check this box, press this button, then don't press that one because you would del- have deleted everything. Do this, go to the next tab, and then confirm. Yeah. And so then at a very basic level, they've met the remit. You yeah. can mix things together. Yeah. But because it wasn't specified in the correct way to begin with, or in, in the correct detail to begin with, mm-hmm. what they end up with doesn't work. Yeah. So when we 
translated research requirements into technical requirements, for example, for this, uh, this case, we know that the UI needs to be glanceable. It's not like you pay your full attention to the UI and then you can do that. You have about one second window when you start your study and this, during this one second, you need to be able to see everything on one screen. You need to be able to control the system and the system should convey you all their errors and messages and everything you need to know exactly right now. Yeah. It doesn't need to overload you. It just needs to help you to conduct research within that one second. Yeah. And then the next window of opportunity will be in five minutes when you have another one second to glance on your, on your screen. Yeah. This is how the system should be designed, but I don't think we can realistically expect researchers to specify requirements in that way, which means that AV people are not going to build the lab that researchers need. In which case they just go by Camtasia or Mori, exactly. that's now been discontinued, sadly. Mm -hmm. Well, not sadly, because it's terrible. But, you know, <laughs> you know, so they just go out and buy that software, buy a few cameras, slap something together and hope for mm -hmm. the best sort of thing. And, you know, they don't get the ease of use that you might, you know, you'd get with a dedicated space that's been designed by experts mm -hmm. sort of thing. Well, so, what, what, what I will say is that what you described there, where someone uses a piece of software with some cameras plugged in, if it's just for their own use, that's yeah. fine. If you're just doing your own studies and you've got a system that works for you with Camtasia or whatever, and you've set it up and you use it, that's probably okay for you. If you're just one researcher doing a thing, that's fine. Yeah. As soon as there's more than one researcher using a thing, that approach does not work, even for two people. Because two people can't have the same idiosyncratic relationship to their technology. Yeah. It just doesn't work. So once you've got seven, it's out of the window. Yet we see people where a company had a researcher who did a thing like that and plugged stuff together and it worked for them and it was fine. Then they hired three more researchers, but they carried on using the same thing. And very quickly they found it just didn't work. It was broken. It was difficult to understand. There was no real training for it. <coughs> so they, um, they kind of threw people away. Threw, it, it kind of... Uh, yeah, they throw people in at the deep end and they're like, oh, this is the thing. Someone shows them once and then they meant to remember how to use it. Exactly, like yeah. yeah. Because they weren't designed to, even that one system wasn't designed to scale to multiple people. So it certainly wasn't designed to scale to multiple systems. Yeah. To complicate things even more, unfortunately, I think we, we haven't found yet a company that uh, specializes in building uh, hardware specifically for UX research, mm -hmm. which means that uh, even if you specify all your requirements to the lab, which is extremely difficult to do, you won't be able to find a lot of solutions off the shelf. Yeah. Like, as a result of that, as soon as we know uh, what we need to end, end, end up with, we do a lot of other boring things to be able to, to achieve that result. Like, for example, we manufacture our own cables because every ca cables we tested, they are not good enough oh, right. in terms of reliability and, and, again, ease of use. Like, for example, they need to be color-coded, they need to be protected from researchers stepping on them and, and kicking them and so on. This is an extremely boring part, but we doing that only because we know the level of reliability you need to achieve in the end. Yeah. Without proper cables, just impossible to do, to do so. Yeah. So that's a complication for researchers who want to build their labs, because even if they somehow magically specify everything from the first attempt, all the requirements, EV, EV people building lab, they still won't be able to build the lab to that requirement. Because they can't find the magic, well, you can't find the magic box that yeah. makes everything, well, well unless you're Sony. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it's kind of like there's not, there's not the kit out there to do everything that people want them to do. 
specifically, you know, yeah. or if there is, it might do a lot of this bit well, but not that bit, and that, et cetera, and et cetera. So we, we, obviously we've sounded quite down on, on AV people designing labs. AV people are very good, AV engineers are really good at designing to specifications. Yeah. So if you can go to them with very exact specifications for what you need, they can probably build you something that will work for research. Yeah. The problem is we've never seen any process where that has worked. We've never seen a process where a research team have created a set of specifications, gone to an AV team or an AV company, built a thing, and at the end of it, they've got a functioning lab. Yeah. They always have an approximate version of something that's a bit like a lab and does some of the functions. Yeah. Because that process is extremely complicated to get through, from the researchers knowing what they want to achieve to six months or a year later, the thing that's built actually achieving those goals. Yeah. There are so many different things involved in that process that it's virtually impossible without the right people managing that process for it to work well at the other end. Yeah, because you've got the research implementer model, you've got the AV team implementer model, and then you've got the system model that ends up at the end. Which yeah, exactly. Like, you yeah. Know, who knows what the hell that, yeah. And it's more the fault of the process than any one part of it or any one type of person involved. It's yeah. just that the process isn't there to create good things at the end. Yeah, I mean, go on. I was going to say that in addition to that, there are different requirements specifically to usability labs, like for example, requirements to quality or reliability are significantly <coughs> higher comparing to meeting rooms, mm -hmm. which means that if a company that builds a very good meeting rooms, if they build a usability lab, that's usually not good enough. Again, it's not because they're, they don't know what they're doing, it's because the whole process is designed to, to, to reach specific level of quality. Yeah. And the quality level is different because they're not equipped to, to do so. That it's not their goal. Yeah. Otherwise, they would have wasted resources on all other projects they, they worked on. Yeah, so, so basically, a, a good enough meeting room is good enough, but it's not good enough as a lab. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, you're not going to throw make it a bulletproof meeting room that's never going to fail because typically, you know, people can handle a meeting room failing. Whereas if you're halfway through a user test and the thing fails, it's a bigger deal. Yeah. And it's not just building, it's, uh, it's the whole, whole life cycle of the, of the lab. Like for example, maintenance. We started with early on maintenance uh, organized by typical EV companies and we quickly realized that it just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So we designed our own maintenance system specifically for researchers. Yeah. Because again, the cost of high, uh, failure is pretty high. If you're a researcher and if something doesn't work in your lab, you usually spend three, five days figuring out who, whose responsibility <laughs> it is before you, it actually starts, kind of, the, the, work, the work actually starts. Yeah. Because, so, yeah. So you basically spend loads of time assigning blame. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 So you broke it, what did you do to break it? Now we need to figure out how to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for example, in most of the companies, uh, IT infrastructure is provided by their internal team, mm -hmm. audiovisual infrastructure provided by uh, EV contractor. The lab itself is built by facilities, so by, by combination of internal and external people. And if something doesn't work because there is no internet connection, for example, it might be any of those reasons. Yeah. So first of all, you need to spend a week figuring out who, who's, whose problem it is, and then you need to chase them to, to fix the problem. Yeah. So for researchers, it just doesn't work. So if there's something doesn't work in the lab, they need to be able to press the button and it's fixed within mm -hmm. five hours, let's yeah. say. So that requires a completely different uh, maintenance process and yeah. a completely, completely different approach to maintenance. Like for example, the latest version of the lab we are, we are building, uh, it's, it's basically a platform that constantly self-monitors everything and proactively reports all the potential issues to, to researcher or to research ops person. Mm -hmm. Instead of just waiting till researchers uh, presses a button, nothing works. Yeah, so it's kind of 
you know, the lab to find, the lab to find, the lab to find. Or you might want to check camera four or something like exactly that. Exactly like that. Oh, yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. So it kind of, yeah, you're preempting any failures rather than having to solve it afterwards. Because yeah. you, you need to bake that kind of diagnostics in to begin with because you can't scale the good people in a system. Yeah. So if you build a lab, you might get a technician to know it inside out and be able to fix everything. You have to keep them there and employ them, but yeah. the, the, the cost of keeping that lab running is that person. Mm -hmm. What about when you've got another one? You can't clone that person. Yeah. What about when you've got 70? You can't make 70 of that person. You have to bake the diagnosis and the maintenance into the system from the start so you can grow and so you can have better systems overall. And that's basically how IT infrastructure works now anyway. Isn't yeah. It? Kind of like, you know, mm -hmm. they remotely install things, remotely diagnose things, just to kind of, you know, so yeah. a smaller team can look after a bigger set infrastructure. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And it's understandable why it's very difficult to build labs with traditional EV and IT companies because it's a very kind of small niche. Lab, as we kept saying, is completely and very different from all other spaces, which means that it's unrealistic to expect that big companies will move into this area or they start manufacturing something specifically for its research because the next related thing, for example, marketing, it's probably hundreds, maybe thousands times larger. Yeah. But still, even for marketing, there is no specific, uh, like there is specific special hardware, but not to the extent that uh, people in marketing actually need. <laughs> cool. Uh, yeah, so it's kind of like, why would these big uh, sort of office installation companies approach this because it's still a niche, even though it's a big niche. It's yeah. like there's a lot of lot of them, lot for them to learn, and a smaller pool of clients. And the rest of their that. world is also growing. Yeah. So even though this niche is growing, it isn't getting bigger as a proportion of the whole. Yeah. So we get smaller. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we might as well just stick with the meeting rooms because we know what we're doing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I think you know we've, we've spoken a lot about sort of the big grand scale. I mean, you kind of alluded to the fact that people can get away with a laptop and things. I mean, what if people, if it's just a one-man band or you've just graduated and you're doing a few freelance projects, what's the bare minimum people need to start recording and things like that? It depends what kind of research you're doing, what your focus is, what type of technology. And one thing we haven't really touched on while we've been talking is the technology as a portion of your research process. Mm -hmm. So... Your time in, a, in any lab, whether it's your laptop on a desk or whether it's a lab that we build for a big international company, yeah. that's part of a much broader thing. So you spent time planning, you spent time doing your iterative design, let's say, if you're going to be testing a prototype or something. Mm -hmm. um, you've recruited participants, you've done all the other stuff. So And then you do your lab work. Yeah. And then after that, you take what's happened in the lab and you do things with it. You share it, you might edit a video, you might get a transcription. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you might do that many, many times and condense it into a, a study or condense it into some way that you're sharing it at the other end. So there's this long process that you go through that involves iteration all over the place. Yeah, yeah. But the lab session, no matter what, what your lab is, is a part of it in the middle. Yeah. So in answer to your question about what's the minimum you need, it depends what your process is. Yeah. Um, but if, if you need to capture what users are doing and saying mm -hmm. and share it with people, the minimum you need is the ability to record a person and a device, let's say. Yeah. And that device might be a phone or a computer, or it might be an interaction with a voice system, for instance. Yeah. So you just need something that can mix those things together. But you need to accept that if you're going extremely lo-fi there, you're adding a much bigger burden on the other stuff. So you then have a file. Where does that file go? Let's say you've done a recording in Camtasia. Yeah. You have to do something with it. So 
with, with proper systems, that will automatically be shared to a content management system of some kind where people can access it and you can share it and edit it. Mm -hmm. With a sm much smaller ad hoc thing like a laptop and you, you're adding the burden of managing that yourself, which is fine. If, if it's just one person, it's okay. Yeah. If it's lots of one persons, that burden adds up as a, as a cost to your business or to your team. Yeah, so, so they, the sort of, um, the labour involved in processing and recordings kind of uh, increases disproportionately with scale. Basically. Yeah, exactly. More yeah. people doing it and then, it'll, oh, have you put it on the shared area? No, I don't which one is it, shared area, I need to map the shared area. Like exactly, that. all of that all stuff. All that sort of fun stuff that happens in organisations. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but, but sort of on a positive note, if you have a laptop with Camtasia, for, for instance, you can record sessions just fine if it's just you on your well, laptop. Well, oh, <laughs> <laughs> again, sort of, you know. from the research perspective, I think the essence of research is that you don't know what you're going to find, yeah. right? And there are multiple uh, tools you can apply to, to extract that knowledge, mm -hmm. like from the domain or from the user, which means that if you plan, for example, just an interview, yeah. It might happen that in the middle of the study, you actually realize that you need to do cloud stalking, yeah. or actually the user brought a device that is exactly, exactly, ex extremely representative of your, your product uh, device, right? So you need to switch to usability testing. Yeah. Or there are people who cannot think aloud. So you, instead of, for example, talking to them, that, which they cannot do, you need to switch to a drawing. Yeah. And then you realize that uh, the setup you have with Camtasia and maybe one camera pointing at the user, it just doesn't work. Constrained. Yeah, so you yeah. take your own uh, smartphone and you start recording the, the car solving. Mm -hmm. And then you switch back. And then you need to switch to the drawing exercise on the, on the white on the whiteboard. And at the end of your study, you end up with recording on your smartphone, uh, weird recording on your camera where there is a user or there, there is no user because they went to the whiteboard, a whiteboard, a lot of pictures, and something else. Yeah. And again, as Adam said, for one researcher, it might make sense because you just need to, you just kind of take, take a day after that to bring everything together and create a report. Yeah. If you have three people and you have an important, important uh, project and you have a window of opportunity where you can affect that product, it just doesn't work. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of like, it's all right if you're just doing bog standard web testing, but something fr crazy might turn up where you need to adapt. In which case, you might need to get your phone out, or you might need mm -hmm. to. Exactly. Your yeah. laptop might crash, and you might be in trouble, or something like that. So, yeah. So it's kind of like you know, there's there's positives and negatives, but having a deep, having a dedicated space is always the sort of you know the gold standard, as opposed to sort of yeah. And it it depends on the scale of the organisation what they're doing basically. Yeah. It's like I guess the same story is with any other spaces in the office. Mm -hmm. Like, do you actually need an office? Well. Your product team can work from a cafe. Yeah. Right? It's basically the same thing. But for some reason people still build offices because there are a lot of characteristics and requirements that you just you just cannot work from a cafe for uh, for all the products. Exactly the same story with uh, with design sprints and yeah. research. You need a space that supports all your design activities and fits all your requirements. Yeah, yeah. I mean that makes a lot of sense. Um, and yeah, I, I suppose my next couple of questions about looking forward. Um, so you mentioned voice earlier. Yeah. Um, so when you think that new things like voice, VR, AI, I IoT, and things are coming in, how how do usability labs need to adapt in order to encompass sort of the emerging technologies? They just need to be multifunctional. People designing labs now need to be thinking that that lab's going to be there for a few years, probably. Mm -hmm. I mean, companies are moving more and more, so the, the lifetime of a lab in one place is becoming less and less. But let's say 
a lab we build now is going to be there in three or five years, probably, yeah. in use. Um, you need to be thinking, what could happen? Uh, you, could, you, you can't guess exactly what's going to happen, but one example is voice is going to be much more important. Mm -hmm. So let's design extremely high-quality audio capture into our labs. Yeah. Uh, when we do our research on researchers, one of the most common complaints people have is about audio. When people talk about the... Um, we, we often ask people, what do they think of? What are the characteristics of labs they've used? And after they get through frustration and annoyance and crawling around on the floor, bad audio is one of the, one of the, one of the high ones as well. Yeah. Um, because good audio is very difficult to achieve. Uh, bad audio is very easy to achieve. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, with voice being more important, people need to be focusing much more on audio. But this isn't a technology problem. It's a combination, like everything we're talking about, it's several things. It's the acoustics of the room. It's the furniture you put in because they affect the acoustics. It's the soundproofing, so it's how you build the walls. Yeah. So just starting with the idea that we're going to be doing more voice work affects your design decisions in the early stages in all these other areas. So it's all, it all built out. So it's scale sort of thing, you know. Exactly, this, yeah. This, this one, right, oh, right, there's this new thing called voice coming in. Oh, we need to, uh, we need to get our lab ready for that. And it's yeah. Like, well, mm -hmm. we need to better soundproof it, better microphones, you know. Uh, yeah. And so the future is better quality of everything, basically, in all these other areas that, that we've mentioned, but also not just voice. What other things are going to be happening? And what... How, how are we going to capture them? Because yeah. labs are all about capturing data and sharing data. So, so smart devices or like a smart washing machine or smart yeah. whatever. Like, how, do, how do you adapt to that then? So let's take a specific example. We go into so many existing labs where they're a smallish room with a big table in that can't move. Yeah. That's fine for certain things. If you're doing card sorting, that's probably great. If you're just doing an interview, that's fine. If you're doing a usability session on a computer at a desk, that's probably okay. Mm -hmm. What if people need to move? What if you're trying to mimic people's interactions with a smart device in their home? Yeah. You don't sit at a white table and stare at a screen and talk to Alexa or, or Google Home. Yeah. You do other things. You sit on a sofa, you lounge around, you walk around. So labs need to be built in a way that facilitates those other types of interaction. It's still very fake. No one's going to believe that your lab is their house. Yeah. But at least if you get them walking around in a circle, they're much less focused than they would be if they were just sitting at a desk and going, Alexa, order me a coffee. Yeah. So multifunctionality and within the space and the technology, being able to capture everything people do from every angle in every way yeah. and allowing them to, to necessitate capturing it from every angle in every way. Cool. So being flexible is a big Fle thing. Very yeah. flexible, yeah. As an extension of that, we are experimenting with a new idea. It's a lab as a pro they call lab as a product. Mm -hmm. We are conducting a pilot with our government department, surprising, uh, where we built a pod with everything is inside, completely standard, and everything provided uh, into the standard product. Yeah. So you just open the door, you can conduct your study there. Uh, the benefit of that is the first thing is what Adam said about creating multifunctional space. And if you have a pod, and we design everything specifically <coughs> for research, like all furniture inside is multifunctional. You can flip a table and convert it into white wall. You can, the table is, is on wheels. It's battery powered. Yeah. Uh, you can drive uh, draw on the table, it's magnetic and so on. It's just a table. So if you design the whole thing like that, that means that your three by three meter space becomes much more functional than any room that you can do in your, in your building. 
Another advantage is that everything is designed to work together. Like for example, there is right lighting, right acoustics, cameras in the right way, the right types of cameras connected in the right way to the right equipment, uh, and everything else the same. Which means that if you have 20 labs in the company, they can be completely the same and can be supplied as their one thing can installed anywhere in the company. So yeah. you don't take, as we, we talked about the current meeting rooms, they don't take actually the meeting rooms, they create a meeting room in, in the dead space somewhere in the office. Mm -hmm. So that's probably another uh, trend. Yeah. And I think the third one is what you asked about building and supporting labs. Right now, the current model is that there are basically two ways how people support labs. The first one is they create an internal department and our rough calculation is if you have an internal depart department, the cost of uh, supporting lab is about $60,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Because you usually have a person who might, might travel between different labs, but you still need one person per three or four labs. You need a manager for three or four people. You need office for them. You need travel expenses and so on and so on. So everything adds up. But it still doesn't work. Because in most of the cases, it's not proactive maintenance, it's reactive. Researchers yeah. start conducting their studies, and as soon as most of the EV people, they don't understand how studies con are conducted, they're still f waiting for feedback from researchers. Yeah. So despite your maintenance costs being about $60,000 a year, your labs are still, still not, not good. So I think the next trend in labs is Research ops is an area, it's growing significantly right now. Yeah, you mentioned that last time I met you. Would you mind just defining what that is for people? So, research operations is a thing that big companies have been doing for a very long time. They've had people who are dedicated to doing a lot of the work that in other places researchers do. So, there are so many hidden costs and hidden things in a research team. A lot of it is admin work. A lot of it is organizational, a lot of it is project management. Yeah. But researchers do it. When you've got one researcher, you have to do it yourself. Yeah. Because you're not going to have a whole other person to do that work for you. But once you get three or four, you can't scale those other tasks. Those other tasks start taking more of their time, not less. So it might be participant recruitment, or it might be booking external facilities, or it might be interacting with other teams or it might be building labs yeah there are all these types of functions and that's just four off the top of my head there are 50 others that researchers do that isn't research so researchers are expensive uh, on one hand so they're a cost so using their time on things they're not really that good at or trained at isn't a good idea but two they're supposed to be on the front line of your company helping to improve your product yeah so any time of theirs you can free up is time that you're spending on making things better and yeah. learning from your users. So for quite a long time, big companies have had research operations teams. They didn't really use that term. They used lots of other, like research assistants and research admins was a common term, yeah. um, who did a lot of the tasks that researchers were formally doing. But what's happened in the past kind of couple of years is lots and lots of other people have, have, have woken up to the idea that this is a really good idea within the research world. Mm -hmm. And there's now a research ops community globally. There's a Slack group, there are meetups, there's all these things going on right. around that, that term and that concept. Um, because more and more people are realizing that it's a thing and it's a good thing for research teams. Yeah. So for every so many researchers, you need support people. And what you don't need is a researcher doing that role. Yeah. What, what, what we used to see happen a lot is a team in a big company would realize there'd be seven or eight researchers within a team 
they'd realise that they needed a person. So they'd hire a junior researcher to come and not do research. Yeah. Do these other things. What do you think happened to that person? They became a researcher. Yeah. Because they wanted to. That's why they took the job, really. And then they have to go and hire someone else. But instead of thinking, we should go and hire an experienced PM or a very experienced EA or, or an admin person because this is the kind of role. Yeah. They go and hire another researcher and they become a researcher. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, so what we're seeing more and more is companies waking up to the fact that this isn't a research role. It's within the research department, but it's like a very skilled executive assistant has the right type, right, right type of skills to do this kind of role. Because you need to be extremely organised, work very well with people. You need to be good at managing projects, quick learner. So companies are start more and more companies, not just the really big tech firms, are now hiring more people into these kinds of roles. And they're starting to hire the right types of people as well. Nice. And that goes back to your point, which you know I, I distracted to get them briefed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was your point? And then, uh... Uh, I was going to say that uh, another trend that we see in building labs is a lab as a part of research ops process. Right. So the lab needs to work, or any infrastructure that researchers use, they need, needs to work as a part of that whole research ops, ops infrastructure. Like, for example, another advantage of having research ops people is that they can help to make research more scalable. It's yeah. still not a solution, but it's much better than not, not having a tech Because person. they have their set processes, and if they follow that in every company, everything, then ideally they'd all be doing it the same yeah. way, yeah. rather than each researcher doing... There are a lot of issues yeah. there as well. Like, for example, a lot of companies treat research, research ops people, uh, they put their on their ladder, on the kind of step of the ladder, which is lower than researchers. Yeah. And you cannot manage researchers or help researchers with... Kind of your, your salary is 50% of theirs, and you're not very important in the company. Mm -hmm. So you need to apply all your soft skills, but it's still not enough. So that's just one of the examples. A lot of companies can, like not a lot, some companies started to realize that it's actually a separate job ladder and they just put it on the, either uh, the same level as researchers or one step higher. Mm -hmm. Because just last experience we had, uh, there was one research ops person who helped tremendously to the whole, uh, whole research team. And there were a lot of like 60 maybe researchers in the team. Maybe more or less. This so is a big tech firm. Yeah. She left and most of the researchers, probably their work slowed down by probably 50% for the whole year. Significantly, yeah. Wow. So if there were one researcher left, it would be one sixtieth of uh, the research. One research, research ops person left, it was like 50% of the whole team for yeah. a year. So that needs to be reflected in power and status of the research, per research ops person or research ops team. And it's not happening at the moment, so it's just one of the complications. Yeah. So the trend is the lab should be a part of that supporting infrastructure for researchers that works together for their goal of the whole company, to make research more visible and to bring that change in their development culture where all the, like the whole product team sees our user feedback. But again, to do that, you need researchers and you need to give the researchers all their, all their functions and you need to take away everything that researchers don't need to do. So, so basically, as well as, bring it, you know, as well as introducing a lab, introduce research ops as a discipline to support the researchers and take away the administrative burden that is basically dragging them down and kind of taking up time that would, could otherwise be used on research. Yeah, it's, it's not just kind of taking uh, administrative burden because there are a lot of things that research ops people do that researchers just can't. Yeah, like for example, yeah, creating standards or reinforcing specific ways of how we conduct research. Yeah, not, I did mean to sort of uh, cheapen it or whatever. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, sort of, you know, um, 
sort of coordinating with external suppliers to get the lads built. Um, uh, all the things Adam, yeah, it's kind of there's a, it's a it's a big role in a, in and of itself. Yeah. And to say individual researchers doing it, doing it in their own way, having a dedicated team that does it with standards and mm -hmm. things to sort of you know streamline it across the organisation is a good way to complement the introduction of a lab or the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the refit of a lab because then you've got a dedicated group of people responsible for looking after it and kitting it out in the first place, etc. Mm -hmm. I think in addition to that, there is a kind of synergy how everything can work together because what we started with is that there are a lot of new research methodologies evolve uh, into a completely new area. We, we've seen that recently. For example, uh, it is possible to change the design process significantly where you conduct regular studies, let's say, every week. Mm -hmm. To do that, you need research ops people providing you, you, you participants every week yeah. and preparing the, the lab and the, the prototypes every week. Then you need researchers to be able to conduct studies every week and not spend one extra week on editing videos and preparing for reports and uploading, downloading files and so on. Yeah, so yeah. that means that your research uh, ops people, your research infrastructure and technology should work together. Yeah. And that everything can change how research is seen and conducted in the whole company. So it's kind of without each piece, that cultural change is impossible. And if you just ask researchers, if you could have everything uh, in the world, would you would you have uh, what, what would you do? They wouldn't be able to to come up with that new methodology because they just don't know what's possible when research ops people are around. Yeah, because every, everything needs to work together. Yeah, and by being sort of stepping, uh, being slightly outside of this, the situation, you guys can see that there's the opportunity there to, to be yeah, 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 yeah. a bit more value to people. Brilliant. I mean, that, that comes to the close of the questions I had for you guys. Was there any sort of closing comments you had to sort of sign us off or anything we didn't cover that you think people would want to appreciate talking about? I don't think so, no. I mean, I think we went into quite a lot of detail there. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a bit more than people were expecting, but um, no, I think that's, that's pretty much it. Yeah, maybe we can add, if somebody plans a lab, if you have any questions, please let us know because there are, there are multiple ways how we can work with companies. If we don't work with the contractor, we just can have We're always happy just to chat about yeah, just share yeah. main pain points that you need to pay attention to when you work in the lab. Yeah. I mean and I mean you've covered most of those, haven't you, the pain points, I think. Uh, we barely touched the tip of the iceberg, honestly. There, there, there's yeah. so many more. We could talk for hours about this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's why I thought it'd be good to get you guys on, just to kind of give like people like this preliminary idea of yeah, what, yeah, yeah. what 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 the the uh, the challenge of setting up a lab involves and I think we've managed to kind of illuminate people's people hopefully in yeah what that, what that is. As, as Adam said we haven't even touched multiple uh, examples like for example there are use cases that are completely different for example if you work with the government department in the government department or in the bank yeah then it just needs to be a different lab everything needs to be on premise uploading anything to the cloud or even making the lab accessible in the internal network is just no go. Yeah. So you need to change the whole infrastructure and the whole design process from the beginning to be able to even start. We have a lot of government clients both here and in, in North America, yeah. and it's fascinating working with them. Also, we have banking clients who are similar, but in some ways more strict um, oh, okay. in terms of how they can operate, what technology they're allowed to use, who they're even allowed to speak to. Yeah. It, it, it's fascinating how the interplay between the type of industry, the type of company, and the technology and the services we provide differ so much in different areas. Right. 
but that is a story for another time. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, if anyone's interested, I mean, we'll put their details on the on the podcast site. Next-study.com. There we go. And um, but yeah, thanks a lot for everyone for listening, and uh, I look forward to doing another podcast soon. Lovely. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Cheers.